following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Morning, brothers and sisters, please grab your Bible if you have it. And though we'll be in Isaiah 61, you can go ahead and turn first to Luke chapter 4. And as you're turning there, we'll welcome you to Foundation. And if you're joining us online, grateful for you to, uh, to have joined us. We've been making our way the last couple of weeks, this Advent series, through, uh, on a high level, the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah is a long book, one of the longest in the Old Testament, and uh, traditionally pretty, pretty difficult to work through. There's a lot of history and a lot going on in the book of Isaiah, and we have stayed very much on the surface, looking and exploring particularly about the themes that Isaiah brings out that help us focus on the person and work of Jesus, for he is the one that we celebrate this morning and every morning, but particularly this season during Advent. And if you recall, there are three portraits of, of servants of the Lord that emerge from Isaiah. The first was the Davidic king, a king that would come in the line of David to rule God's people perfectly and justly in all, in all righteousness. And then there was the servant of the Lord, particularly one who would come and suffer as God's servant on behalf of God's people. And this morning we're going to see the messenger of God who comes. But we're going to look at first at Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16. This is, of course, after Jesus' baptism, and he was led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted unsuccessfully by Satan. And there he was ministered to, and then he comes out from the wilderness back into Galilee. We pick up in verse 16. And he, that is Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. That's his hometown. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled back up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Let's pray. Father, we turn our attention to your word, but we see, God, that the word has been fulfilled in Christ. So be with us now as we study, as we learn, as we submit ourselves to the preaching of your word, through your spirit. May our minds be attentive, and our hearts calm, our ears open, and our eyes clear, that we may receive with joy, gladness, without hindrance, the truth and the beauty of your word and the good news it preaches to us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. With the portion in Isaiah 
that Jesus reads from the scroll in the synagogue on that day is the portion which we'll study in a little more detail this morning, Isaiah 61, particularly the first two verses there. Although incidentally, he doesn't continue on. He stops as almost in the middle of the verse, rolls up the scroll and sits down and then begins to teach on it. But what we need to recognize here first, before we get into Isaiah proper, is, is paramount to understanding Jesus' own conception of himself. Because how he understands himself, and particularly as he understands himself to be the fulfillment of God's promises in the Old Testament, is crucial to understanding the rest of Jesus' ministry on earth. That is, Jesus understands himself particularly to be the figure that Isaiah speaks of here in chapter 61. That is, Jesus himself is that figure. And that all the promises and all the expectations and all the realities of that text not only point to him, but are fulfilled in him and are realized in him. So know, friends, from the beginning, that Jesus begins his ministry with the texts of the Old Testament and says, this is about me. And the words and the promises and the expectations are not only pointing to me, but are fulfilled in me and are realized in me. That's important for us to remember as we look back into the Old Testament, not just this morning, but at any time, that the promises and the realities described in the Old Testament are ultimately leading us to see Christ as the central figure in God's word, but ultimately to center around the activity, the person, and the work of Jesus as the fulfillment of those things. That's a much broader topic that we can discuss at a later time, but know that Jesus himself, as he begins his ministry, says what Isaiah speaks of, I fulfill. Who Jesus, what Isaiah points to, I fulfill. Now turn to Isaiah chapter 61, and our text we'll study. We're going to read the first 11 verses that will focus primarily on the first three. Isaiah chapter 61. There the prophet writes, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. 
Therefore, in their land shall they possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong, and I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring of the Lord, that the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before the nations. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. What we see clearly in this prophecy is a picture of a figure that emerges, a messenger of God who is sent to proclaim good news to those who are suffering, captives. In the context of Isaiah, this is those who are free from exile, yet amidst the devastation and ruins of Jerusalem. So remember, Israel was sent into exile and captivity under the Babylonians and the Assyrians. And God raised up a servant, Cyrus, king of Persia, who would issue a decree that the Jews would be allowed to leave that land and go back into Jerusalem and begin to restore that city, the temple and its walls. He saw this as a political move, but as we know from the historical narratives we studied from past summer, that God used the political motivations of these kings often to accomplish his purposes. Well, Isaiah is speaking into the midst of that situation, and he sees those who are mourning for Zion. They walked into desolation and ruin, and they are heartbroken about what remains and what seems to have left. Well, the temple is destroyed, and God's city is in ruins, and therefore their hope is gone. They're not sure where to start or how to begin. They're not even sure if God would lead them to restore Israel back to its glory, if he would still be their God and they would still be his people. They're looking, of course, for hope. They're looking for faithfulness of God to his promises. They're looking for the renewal of the covenants that they might be the nation that he has made promises for them to be. It's hard to often see the promises of God as a reality when we see the desolation and the ruin of our own lives. Many of us live comfortable lives, but we can look sometimes at the decisions we've made in our past and see the, the destruction that they've left. Or we can look around in the world and see the ruin of sin and despair all around us. And we can wonder, even as Christians, is God really going to solve this? Is he really going to fix what seems so wrong in the world? Isaiah raises up a, a picture of a messenger who had come, who was sent by the king, Yahweh himself, to deliver the good news that, yes, Their hope should be fixed because God will redeem his people. God will do what he has promised he would do in his time and in his way, but God indeed will always be faithful. Now, earlier in Isaiah, we saw in chapters 9 and 11, a Davidic ruler would come up. Those from the the tribe of David, the seed or root of Jesse, would come up through the line and lineage of David. Recall in 2 Samuel 7, God made a covenant, a promise with David himself 
that somebody from his line would sit on the throne of David forever, whose kingdom would have no end. And though it wasn't David or Solomon or any of his sons, the promise still stands. And those in Isaiah's day would look back to that promise and believe that God would one day bring a king. And so Isaiah promises that God indeed would do that in chapters 9 and chapter 11. A little later on, last week, we saw in chapters 42 and 53 that God would also raise up a servant, somebody to do what Israel failed ultimately to do, to be a light to the nations, to lead others to God. But Israel, instead of doing that, led themselves to be like the nations. Instead of leading others into the light of God's presence and glory, they abandoned the light into the darkness of the world. And so God would raise up a servant of the Lord, and he would draw back his people to himself and be a light to all nations, not simply for the Jews, but for all the world who would be blessed through this servant. And the means that he would do this would be the laying down of his own life. Thus we see in chapters 42 and 53 and 55 what we call the servant songs, the passages and the poetic picture of this servant who would suffer for the sake of his people. But we see a king, and in the servant, we see this priestly sort of role. When chapter 53 tells us that he offers up in his soul a guilt offering to God for the sake of his people. We have a kingly portrait or figure, a priestly figure, and here in our text we see very much a prophetic figure. One who is risen by God in the midst of this desolate situation to preach and proclaim good news. He is a messenger of God to God's people. Whereas the servant of the Lord brought comfort and had a prophetic message that he would speak to all nations, here the prophet comes and speaks to God's people about hope and about the purposes of God to deliver them and his faithfulness to his promises. So these three figures in Isaiah's mind and in the book are relatively distinct from one another. But Jesus looks back on this passage and says, that's me that Isaiah speaks of. The evangelists, the gospel writers also look back to Isaiah 7 and 9 and 11 and say that kingly figure is Jesus as well. The author of Hebrews tells us that the priestly sacrifice of Jesus is pictured in Isaiah 53. So these three Portraits ultimately meet their fulfillment and realization in Jesus. But as Israel were to read these, their hopes would be in the provision of God to deliver his promises. Whether or not they were the same person, it was God's faithfulness to his people as their king that was the attentive word. Well, let's consider these verses a little more specifically. First, notice that it is God that has decreed the good news. Before we get into the prophet himself, notice that it is God who has decreed good news, and so he sends the prophet to declare it. He anoints this prophet with the Spirit there in verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, he says, because the Lord has anointed me, set me aside, consecrated me, commissioned me to bring good news to the poor. So this is a prophet, a messenger of the king, that is God, the Lord, to go and tell of the message the king has decreed. This is a 
backdrop, of course, in that culture, kingship and messengers are very much common. This is how nations work. And we have something similar to this in our country with presidents and ambassadors. And the ambassador's job is to speak on behalf of the president and the country to that foreign nation. And he is not to speak his own words, but as he speaks, he represents the president or the administration and largely the country. Well, the messenger who would go out from the Lord is to deliver the Lord's message, not his own. The king makes a decree, it goes out, and the prophet goes and speaks the decree. He proclaims the decree. He declares it. This is the Lord's decree. The prophet merely comes to declare it. Now, we think about the decrees of the Lord. Language here can be pretty tricky. We think about describing the Lord in general. Language will ultimately fail us. But know this about God's decree. God's decree is eternal. It is universal, and it is inviolable. That means it is eternal because God, in the history of redemption, began this work in eternity past. Indeed, there was no beginning to the history of redemption. This was his purposes and plans forever. It is in universal in the sense that it covers all of the universe. Every person stands in the offering of this good news. God is king of the earth. He is creator over all creation. And so his decree goes out to govern all, not just a few. And when we say inviolable, we mean, of course, it cannot be broken or marred. It cannot be shattered. See, what God decrees will necessarily be so. If God can decree something that cannot come to pass, we have right to doubt God's power, sovereignty, and wisdom. But what God decrees must necessarily be so. Even if the reality of those decrees are slow in coming to fruition, we don't see them perhaps in our own lifetime, that we read about them in God's word. Yes, though a command may be broken, or a law disobeyed, not one of God's decrees, not one of what he says, this shall pass, will ever be ignored or ultimately unfulfilled. What God decrees will come to pass. And so we see in this picture of the messenger of God coming, declaring what God has decreed, that good news will come to God's people. It will come, and it cannot be interrupted, intercepted, or ruined. But what has God, the king, decreed? And what must therefore be declared to the public? Well, notice again in verse 1, in our text, Isaiah calls it good news. Well, what is the good news he comes to declare? It is this. The good news is the news of the gracious inbreaking of God's perfect and just rule over his people. That God who once sent his people into exile, not simply Israel, but banished Adam and Eve from the garden of paradise in Genesis 3 and 4, will once again come and establish rule over his people justly and perfectly. It's the inbreaking of God's rule over his people. It's the establishing of his kingdom here on earth where God will rule perfectly and justly. Since he has declared this, then, who will come to frustrate the king's purposes? 
Who can defeat the king's plans? We read this morning from Psalm 113. Let me read it again. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is seated on high? Who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? Or elsewhere in the Psalms, our Lord is in the heaven. He does all that he pleases. So when the Lord, the sovereign Lord, decrees that a thing would be, who will stand in its way? Who will seek to destroy the plans of the Lord and succeed? Nobody. For who is like the Lord our God? This is good news for God's people who wander in exile or in desolation or who, like us, look around the world and wonder when his plans will come to fruition because there is the seed of hope we have that he who has decreed that promises and good news would unfold for his people will not abandon those promises. His decree being eternal and universal and inviolable means that it will stand no matter what. Who is like the Lord our God? So King Yahweh has decreed this good news, and so then he sends the prophet to declare it. This is our second point, that the good news is spoken by the mouth of God's anointed messenger. He is, in verse 1, we see again, anointed with the Spirit of God himself for a particular task. Again, look in verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring about good news. So the purpose of God is that this prophet, this messenger would come to declare and bring good news that has been decreed by God. And so God gives him his spirit to enable and equip him to do this faithfully. This task that the, the, the prophet is called to bring is the prophetic proclamation of the king's decree, that is, the good news that would come to God's people, that he will establish and rule his people on earth. Let's look a little closely at the purposes and the tasks of this servant. There's several infinitives here. Some translations help us see that clearer than others, but by that we simply mean we see several tasks that were given to the anointed messenger. First, he says that he was anointed to bring good news to the poor. To bring good news. There's other passages here in Isaiah that recall to mind those who have beautiful feet who bring good news. This is the provision of God who sends the messenger to bring good news. Think of the angels who interrupted the shepherd's watch, who come down to give a picture of what has just been happening in the manger. Glad tidings of great joy that in the town of David, a baby is born. This is good news given to the poor. Notice the other tasks. He has come and been sent by the king not only to bring good news to the poor, but to bind up the brokenhearted. Now, I think in the West, we can think of heartbreaking as something often around romantic desires. But here, we need to understand that this is really the breaking down of the whole person. 
the hopes and longings and desires of the person now sits in disarray, much like the city of Jerusalem and the temple itself. And so the prophet here is to bring good news and to preach good news and the binding up of the brokenhearted. Notice also he has come to proclaim liberty and release to the captives. This is drawing upon the picture that every seventh year, the year of Jubilee, captives, indentured servants would be set free just as a rule in Israel. That those who were slaves and indentured to their masters would be given the grace to be set free. Well, God sends his messenger to declare the decree is true that those who are now in servitude under the slavery and the yoke of oppression and fear and hopelessness will have liberty and be released. Notice also he comes to announce God's favor. In verse 2, the Lord has sent me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the vengeance of our God. That is, the favor of the Lord is that God accepts his people and no longer rejects them. Imagine the hope and the blessing that this would have been to the ears of those freshly returned from exile. He who disciplined them, send them in that captivity. And the question would be, would God ever receive us back? The prophet says to his people, yes, you are accepted, not rejected. The good news, again, the announcement of God's favor is that not only are they accepted again in God's, God's sight, but they will be restored again in God's presence. Not condemned, but restored to his faithfulness and his presence. And not only this, but in the second part of verse 2, that the day of vengeance of God would come. And so there would be a redress of the injustices done against God's people, even a redress against the injustices done to God by God's people, that there will be a judgment that would redeem his people and ultimately freeing them from slavery. They would no longer be captive or under condemnation, but they would be accepted by God, restored to his presence, and exalted, not put down. Well, this picture of God's favor is that which comes to us in the messenger of God who preaches and declares this good news, that you no longer have to look to others to accept you, that you don't have to turn to your works or your righteousness or to your behavior, your moral ethics or your accumulation of money or status or wealth or whatever it may be, you are accepted by the Father and no longer have to continue to find acceptance elsewhere. Our tendency, of course, is often to reject the acceptance of God because we think we're not worthy of it. It's to reject the promises of God because we think they can't possibly be true or meant for us. We think we're not worthy to be restored and deserve justly our condemnation. We believe that the redress of God sits rightly on us. Well, half of that, of course, is true. When we sin against God, a holy, just, and perfect God, we rightly incur his wrath against sin. A just God must repay sin. He must deal with evil. And so if that means he must judge us, then we deserve it. But the promises of God are not conditioned upon whether we think that we deserve it or not. It's not conditioned upon whether we can earn it. It is conditioned upon God's will and his will alone. 
This again is a picture of God's perfect decree. We read Ephesians chapters 1 and 2. We see according to the perfect counsel of his will, he has predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters to himself. For no other reason, we are told, except that it would glorify God. And he did so in love. This prophet would come to announce God's favor. And lastly there at the end of verse 2, to comfort all who mourn. Those who look around them in desolation and destruction and are saddened by what they see. Saddened, perhaps, because of their own sin and contribution. They know that they sinned against the Lord. It was their and theirs alone that led them into captivity. Have you ever mourned over your own sin? Or when sin breaks out among you and in the world, have you mourned over the sin that happens in this world? The good news the prophet comes to preach to his people is the good news of comfort. That God's end-breaking is going to deal with such sin. We see two others that he comes to provide and to give this good news. That is, these last two we see as a result of the others. In verse 3, to grant to those who mourn in Zion and to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. See, the result of the prophets coming and preaching and declaring of the good news, the binding up of the brokenhearted, the proclaiming of the liberty and the release of the captives, the announcement of God's favor, of his acceptance and restoration and his, his justice and equity and his comfort to his people is that he would provide for them this beautiful headdress, this garment of praise. He will establish them as oaks of righteousness and in them, Glorify himself. See, the prophet's proclamation here about this good news is indeed an announcement. But it also gives rise to that which is proclaimed. The very act of the prophet's proclamation and announcement is also the event by which these things happen. This is a key piece not to miss. That the prophet who comes to proclaim these things is also the means by which these things come to be. That when the prophet, the messenger of God, preaches good news, the good news then reaches his people's heart and changes it. The proclamation or the announcement of this prophet is an announcement that also is an event. It's not just the story of good news. It is the good news itself which changes and transforms the hearts of those who hear it with ears to hear and who see it with eyes to see. The result and the work of of the prophet's message, his declaring of the decree of the sovereign, perfect will of God, these results are directly attributed to his faithfulness to act and to proclaim the message of the Lord. That is, in other words, transformation preached here in Isaiah comes in and through this proclamation. That when the messenger comes to preach, he also creates and enables the transformation which he preaches. Two points to think about then. 
One, the good news demands a response. When the messenger comes to preach good news, it is an invitation. And he places the invitation in front of its hearers. And he welcomes and invites all those to come and believe the good news and so receive the joy that is promised in the news, in the decree of God, that these things will come about. He lays this and demands a promise, or response, rather. When we hear the good news preached, when we hear this ultimately fulfilled in Christ, and the gospel that Jesus Christ is in himself the inbreaking of God into humanity, and when he is the one who has for us died, that we might be redeemed to God, each one of us who hears this must respond. Every time, always. Whether you're a Christian this morning or not, you're listening and you're, you're not a Christian or you are, this gospel, this good news demands a response to you. Will you believe it? Receive it? That's truth. Not simply assent to it as a logical precept to be believed. Perhaps Jesus historically lived, historically died, and maybe there was something spiritually going on in his life and his death, and perhaps even he resurrected. But this is something I can assent to as a fact and not believe in my heart. But rather, we must, as it demands we do, respond in faith or in rejection. But here's where I think is more important for us. It's not just that this good news demands a response. Secondly, this good news creates the response it demands for those whom God has willed and called to himself. We won't get into a discussion of God's election here. As always, I divert you to our elder, Jake, who will gladly help you understand what that looks like. But know this, the Bible teaches that God has chosen those for himself. He has a chosen people that he calls to himself. And though the gospel goes out universally to all people who can hear it, the preaching of the message may go to millions and millions and millions of people. Only those who God calls to himself will truly receive it with good news. Why? Because it is in the preaching of the gospel. The heart is changed. And so this good news will create the response that it demands from its hearers. This is the work of the Spirit, working through the prophetic word of God's good news. That though dead hearts and deaf ears listen to this gospel preached, God's Spirit will come and change that heart and open the eyes and unmute the ears so that they would see and receive the gospel as true and glorious. It is not because they've created this in themselves. It is not because they've changed or transformed themselves by their own work. It is because God has created in them and in you and in me the very response that the good news that was preached to us demanded. And by God's grace, you and I believed it. If indeed you have received it by truth. And so the good news is spoken by the mouth of God's anointed messenger so that God may continue to accomplish his purposes, which is the calling and the anointing and the saving of people he has ordained to be his children. It's a large and glorious truth, but it is true nonetheless. Lastly, notice to whom this good news is preached. The messenger is anointed by God, by his spirit, to go and preach good news to whom? To the afflicted. 
to the poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, those who mourn, those who are in prison and are bound, those who are hopeless and waiting for God to work and act and move. The good news is preached to those who are lowly, who are broken. And this is the community that God then establishes his covenant. As we read in chapter 61, verse 8, I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Who is to them? It is these people that God has redeemed and restored and delivered and brought out of darkness into his light. It is this new nation, all made up of priests, who come to minister to one another before the Lord, who is to be in Christ, the light to all nations. And this community is renewed by the transforming power of God's word, working by God's spirit, declared by the prophet. The oppressed are going to be liberated under this good news. The the oppressors themselves are humbled. The poor are given great and unfathomable riches. And the wealthy then are made to be generous with what God has given them. The fallen are restored and the hurting are healed. This is the good news that the messenger of God preaches and has been decreed by God that will never fail or fade away. The community that is born out of this preaching, out of this truth, out of these promises, is the community of God renewed by the transformative power of God's Spirit, working through His Word, declared by the messenger of God, the prophet of God, the good news. Well, who? Who are the poor? The question, of course, when we ask who are the poor should always be asked with the other question, compared with whom? Certainly there are those within our own midst that have far less than others and we should seek as both Christians and as good and decent people made in the image of God to relieve the suffering and the poverty of others. But Isaiah's words here, they go beyond mere physical and social poverty. We're actually the the contrasting backdrop to this prophetic witness that the the messenger here comes to preach is the glory of God. That's the backdrop here that all of this is meant to be contrasted to. Notice again in verse 3 that they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. And in verse 9, their offspring shall be known among the nations, their descendants amidst the people, and all who see them shall acknowledge them that they are in offspring the Lord has blessed. So the backdrop here is the glory of God, his goodness, his faithfulness, the majestic king of kings. So the backdrop to the poverty that this good news comes to relieve is not just physical, financial, social poverty, but against the backdrop of God's glory, we need to ask the question, who isn't poor? Who isn't in need? Who possesses such glory and righteousness as to stand before God and the fulfillment of his purposes and declare, I've got enough. I'm sufficient in these things. You know the answer is nobody, not if God is to be believed. And so Jesus, when he says in Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes strike us well this morning. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. By poor in spirit, Jesus doesn't mean you have to actually have material poverty, but what he means is you must recognize before God, you have nothing to commend yourself. You must recognize 
that you have nothing, no works of righteousness, no intellect, no moral compass that will commend you to God that he might save you. Rather, poor in spirit means coming in your contrition, acknowledging your poverty before God, your depravity that has led you to be in hostility and enmity to God, and you pour yourself out for the mercy and the grace of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, Jesus knows, yes, he is also the fulfillment of this messenger who has come, but he also brings that good news to those who recognize that before God, they are needy and poor. What does the book of Revelation tell us? We must not boast in our riches. Before God, we are all poor, blind, and naked. And it is in that meekness of spirit that we receive the good news. You should be glad and boast, not in your strength and not in your wealth, but in your nakedness before God, in your contrition before God, in your poverty before God, because the good news comes to those who are afflicted. What Jesus tells us very clearly in the Gospels, he has not come to heal the healthy, for they have no need of a physician. Who has the physician come to heal? Those who are sick. So your righteousness is not going to be the means by which you receive the good news, but it is only your humble contrition and repentance for your false righteousness that allows you to receive and see with gladness that these promises are for you. The good news is preached to those who are afflicted. Let's return then to Jesus. We began in Luke chapter 4 where Jesus himself says Isaiah 61 is about him. Today, in your presence, this scripture is fulfilled. And so we see then that Jesus is the messenger of God. He is the one that God rose up and sent to his people that he might deliver the decree of God to redeem his people, establish a people for himself, to build a kingdom and a nation of priests who minister to one another and him for his glory. The uniqueness of Jesus, of course, is this. Isaiah couldn't have realized this. The readers of Isaiah couldn't have realized this. In fact, Peter tells us that the prophets tried to figure all of this out, but it was for our sake, not theirs, that Jesus does this in a unique way. And that he simply doesn't just come as a man, but he comes as God. Just as Isaiah's Davidic king of Yahweh, Jesus is both king and Yahweh in the flesh. And as Isaiah's suffering servant, Jesus accomplishes God's purpose for man by suffering as the God-man. And here, Jesus is both the messenger and the message. 
He is the embodiment of the message concerning God's rule in the world. He is both the prophet and the prophetic word. As the Apostle John tells us, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God and was God, and the word became flesh. And so Jesus is not simply a man born to be the messenger of God, but is the divine son of God born as a man to be for us the messenger of God. As God's prophet to his people then, Jesus, yes, becomes like them. This is the beauty of the gospel, friends, that in order to reach the afflicted, Jesus, who is God, becomes the afflicted, you see. To reach the blind, Jesus, who is God, plunges himself into the darkness that he might rescue and redeem those who are blind. To those who mourn, Jesus offers himself. A man of sorrows, he is called, to comfort those who are heartbroken Jesus offers himself and opens up to us his own heart. So Jesus is the divine son of God who is born as a man. And this is what we celebrate at Christmas. This wonderful, incomprehensible reality that Jesus, who is the son of God, takes on the nature of a man, human, like you and I, so that it might be us he redeems, you see. In order to do this, to be the mediator, he had to be like us and plunge himself, condescend into our reality, into our history, taking on our frailty, our limitations, and our weakness, and in the flesh, suffer and die that he might bring the good news of the promises that he has also come to proclaim. That is why he is both the messenger and the message itself. Is that not good news of great joy that the baby in the manger born in the tribe in the time of David is Jesus who is the message of God? And it is through this divine son of God who has taken the form of a servant through whom man will be reconciled to God. Yes, he takes on the role of King David. He takes on the role of the priest's the servant of God, and he takes on the role of the prophet here in Isaiah 61 so that we might be reconciled to God. Our sin, which has created an enormous, incomprehensible, untraceable means by which we are in rebellion to God, it is restored and reconciled through Jesus' birth and his life and his resurrection. Man is reconciled to God because God became man. He took on the form of a flesh. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He grew up and lived a perfect, sinless life. He gave himself completely to the will of God in perfect obedience to his law and his word, and he suffered death on a cross. He was cursed that God's word of blessing might come to those who are under the curse. But it's not simply that he has come to reconcile man to God, but he has come then 
as the messenger through whom God will judge the world. Now, we know that Jesus says, I have not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And Matthew 3.16 tells us not to condemn it, but to offer this salvation. But there will be a day when Jesus returns again, and the judgment that is promised here in verse 2, that not only the year of the Lord's favor, but the day of the vengeance of God will be visited upon his people, where all the unrighteousness and injustice will be made right, where the Lord's recompense will be meted out, and God will judge the world. And so what is Jesus doing as the prophet? He is declaring that Yahweh is coming as a warrior king in saving judgment of his people. And this will usher in a new era of favor in which Zion, God's people, will become glorious because the glory of King Yahweh will dwell there with him. In the greater context of Isaiah, this is the promise, that God will again dwell with his people. And the messenger comes and says, yes, this is true. Ultimately, Jesus says as the messenger then, I have come, I have dwelled. And therefore, those who come to the Father will come to the Father through me. Those who hear the good news will hear it as I preach it. Let us end then with Romans chapter 10 and hear what the Apostle Paul says about the prophetic word and witness of Christ. Romans chapter 10. Here he speaks of those who would come to know about this promise. Verse 11, chapter 10, the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches and all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, how then will they call on him of whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed us that they have what they have heard from us. So faith, saving faith, comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So the prophetic word uttered by Jesus does not end with his death, but continues today through the preaching of his word, through the text in your Bibles, through the comfort that we offer one another according to the promises Jesus lays out for us in his ministry. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Friends, let us not only believe this good news and take it to heart, but comfort one another with this good news. And let us send our own messengers out that they may proclaim the good news so that those who would hear it would believe that those whom God has numbered among his people will come to believe and realize that they have been called and are his. That is our task as nation of priests to minister to the world, to be a light to the nation because Jesus himself has come both as a message and the messenger of God's goodness, faithfulness, and glory the good news that Jesus Christ suffered and died in our place, that we might become reconciled, righteous sons and daughters of God, that that we could turn for his glory to worship Christ 
in spirit and truth. Let's, let's pray. Father, we are thankful for this truth as always. And I do pray, God, that there might be some hearing or listening to this that is intrigued by what this good news is really offering to them. That many of us, of course, have heard this preached in Sunday school or um, sermons, uh, read about it in li- online or even in our Bibles, and not fully seen that the promise of good news is for those who are hurting and broken, who are lost in their own self-righteousness, who are under captivity by the law or by their guilt or by their conscience, those who are trapped in darkness and are slaves to the enemy or to the passions of their own flesh. They do not realize that the good news is preached to them that they would believe it and be set free from such things. And so, God, I pray that if, if they are hearing this, God, that you would work sovereignly in their heart and minds to save them, to receive them, to see that what they are demanded to believe is in their grasp. That you would grant them the faith to believe it, a heart open to their own sin, to repent of it, with eyes to see the beauty the irresistible grace of your will and love to them, that they might be moved and be saved. I pray for those who have believed this, to be encouraged that we are, though very far from heaven, sons and daughters and the less of the King of heaven. And our Lord who sits high above the heavens and the earth, that there is no one like you and that your promises and decrees that have gone out from your throne endure forever and we receive them and believe them that they may help us in our struggle and give us comfort in our mourning, encourage us when we are discouraged and strengthen our faith when we are tempted to doubt. We look both to Christ and to one another this word may continue to issue forth from our scripture and then from our mouths, from our hearts, that this community would be a community built on this word that was spoken to us by Christ. It would be a community built on the word who is Christ. Lord, we love you. We give thanks as always in Jesus' name. Amen. Recent sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no-derivative 3.0 license. If you'd like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Not slave to righteousness, our faith perfected by His love. Praise the Savior, He has won. Our sin defeated through His blood. Now exalted, Jesus reigns.